Hello and welcome to I'll Start Monday, the podcast that asks, what can I do starting Monday that'll have a positive impact on my life? Every day in Ireland, more than 200 people give up smoking. And with Nicorette, you could join them. Join the quitters with Nicorette, clinically proven to help you quit for good. Based on Healthy Ireland 2019, Nicorette contains nicotine. Stop smoking aid requires willpower. Always read the label. I'm your host, Keith Walsh. And this week, we're focusing on how to boost brain health and beat brain fog. In the chair today, we have Dr. Sabina Brennan, a health psychologist, neuroscientist, number one best-selling author of 100 Days to a Younger Brain and host of the Super Brain podcast, founding director of Trinity Brain Health, internationally recognised health expert. Dr. Brennan is passionate about brain health and helping everyone unleash their super brain. Welcome to our podcast, I'll Start Monday. Sabina, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. How's the brain today? Oh, yeah. Actually, I'll be honest, it's a little bit sluggish this morning. <laughs> <laughs> are you are you brainy? Like, are you, one of, you know, I remember growing up, like, you'd refer to someone as brainy. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it's funny. And, and I, I, I actually have that in the intro of my first book. Okay. Um, this book is not about being brainy. It's about being smart enough to look after your brain. So it's definitely not about brainy. I actually didn't think I was brainy. And then I went to university at 42 and was absolutely terrified because I'd left school at 16 and was dreading going in because I was going in to study psychology and that's real high points and I'm going oh my god all these brainy kids and me and I'm not saying this boasting maybe it is boasting I don't know It's okay to boast you're in a safe space (laughs) But I came first in my class every single year I came first in faculty I got the highest grades my grade point average over the three years was like 82.5% and I hadn't seen myself as brainy and actually would throw it out there to people like I had spent all my life thinking that when people are having conversations, people who were who'd been to university and had degrees, I had opinions, but I kind of felt, oh, God, maybe that will sound really stupid because I haven't studied in university. And actually what I discovered is, you know, living life, having mortgages, raising kids, that's much more challenging and difficult than getting an undergrad degree. Really, with an undergrad degree, you just have to do what you're told. Study X, Y, Z answer the questions and put it down. And I would say to people, like, aside from being brainy or whatever, just the experience, if you pick a subject that fascinates you and go study it in university, it's really, really enjoyable. Like, I loved it. Now, my lecturers didn't like me so much because I'd read all the books before we kind of went into the lectures. And one of them even said to me, because I was immature, you know, she said to me, I used to be terrified when you'd come into class for what question you might ask. But I was just hungry for knowledge. And that knowledge was, so it was a psychology degree. So it was just this interest in human behaviour and how the brain works. So I kind of ate up all the books and I had left a career in acting to, well, the career in acting sort of left me. I worked in Fair City and my character got killed off. So I was kind of unemployable for a while. So I thought I'd do a night course and do a night course in psychology. And when I rang the university, they actually just said to me, they had an I course and I rang them. I knew nothing about CAO points and deadlines. And I had, they just said to me, look, the deadline for applying for the full time course for regular people, non-matures, was last week. But if you're a mature, you know, we're taking applications up to five o'clock today. So that was half four. So I quickly wrote off an application and suddenly found myself studying for a full time undergrad degree in psychology. And a lot of people said to me, 
that's mad, Sabina. You're going from acting into psychology. Like, that's a big leap. And I said, no, it's no big leap at all. I was an actor because I'm interested in the human psyche. Why do we do what we do? And it just followed. And I honestly thought that when I was studying psychology that I would continue my acting at the same time. But I got so drawn into the psychology and then I got a scholarship to do a PhD in neuroscience. So that was really delving into the brain and human behaviour, which is what really fascinates me. And I continued with that. And I suppose now I've come out the other side of those things. I did my finished my PhD in 2010. And so then I I ran a dementia research program, but I was also very passionate when I was doing my PhD, discovering all this information about how your brain could be kept healthy and how you could reduce your risk of developing dementia. And some of it was as old as 1986. And I'm kind of going, how did I not know this? I was pretty much the same as everybody else when I was starting that research that, oh, dementia, maybe it's genetic, you know, maybe it's just a consequence of aging and there's nothing we can do about it. And my research was about how the brain changes with age, you know, memory function and I discovered all that. I didn't discover the research. Other people had discovered these risk factors for dementia, these things that if you didn't do them or if you did do them could reduce your risk. And I kind of, I sort of felt this almost a moral obligation to tell people. I have to tell people about this. Like, why doesn't anybody know about this? And for a while I did tell everyone I knew and probably drove them insane. But actually then I got funding. Like when you work in research or in a university, like a lot of people think, oh, you've got this cushy job. That's from the past. So I never had a full-time permanent job in university. What you've got to do is apply for funding. That then pays your salary, pays your team salary, etc. You do your research project, then you have to apply again. And and that's the way it works. So you're just a contract worker like anyone working in a in a shop. And you've got to keep, while you're doing that job, then you've got to think about applying for funding for the next. Much, much like your old career then in that you were yeah. going for auditions and getting the job and then that job would get you to the next job and then you'd Yeah, uh, and, and complete uncertainty. And take us then now to last year. I brought in a lot of money, you know, as part of a big, the the overall research project was like 25 million. I just had brought in a small portion of that to look at, it was called BrainFit. It was in Trinity, you know, it was to look at brain health, lifestyle, genomics and dementia. And we kicked off, you know, in 2019. And then the pandemic hit and our, my participants in my research study are aged 60 to 90 plus. Uh, we do face-to-face two-hour analysis of their brain function. Uh, we also take blood tests for the genomics, all that. We can't do our research. So basically, you know, the funders pulled the money and so I'm unemployed or, you know, became unemployed and so did my team. You know, and now I write books, I have my podcast, I do other things. But it, it is, I've never thought of it that way. It is that sort of a, a career. But kind of going back to where my passion lies, I value you know, the scientific research, but I think I probably value more translating that empowering information to other people. And that's what I do. I just feel it's 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 really funny that, you know, people brush their teeth twice a day and they don't do anything for their brain health. And you can't do anything without your brain and people just don't even know how their own brain works. So that's kind of my little mission, you know. Yeah, because we are nothing without the brain, ultimately. So 
So, I mean, some of our, so give us the good stuff, right? So some of our listeners now will be listening. They might be in their 20s, 30s. They're quite young. They're not worried about their brand. Their brand will be there for them when they're older. What are the things that, you know, people could kind of start building in or the watch outs, the things people could start building into their lives now to ensure that they don't, you know, they do their best to not end up, uh, you know, suffering from dementia and, and those kind of things. So, so, so it's not even just that. It's just about optimizing. So that's where, you know, I came from. Superbrain is the podcast. And I actually, the tagline is, is that it's for everyone with the brain. And, and I would argue that brain health is for everyone with right. the brain. And it should start from childhood. You know, like we really should kind of be looking after that. And you said, say people in their 20s and 30s, you know, and, and, and it's so true. They're not thinking about things like dementia. I wouldn't have been thinking no. about things like that at that point. And anyway, but actually the brain starts to shrink from the age 30 onwards mm. and you lose a little bit of brain volume each year and then when you hit 60 that accelerates and then if you have a disease like dementia then that really really speeds up and it's called atrophy but it's a loss of brain cells and connections between them and with the loss of brain cells and connections you will have a loss of function over time very gradually and you know, they or we, and that by we, I mean the entire scientific community across the globe, people who are neuroscientists who, who explore this stuff, describe that as age-related brain atrophy and that it's just part of ageing. But actually, as you look closer to some of the things I'm talk- going to tell you about, about keeping your brain healthy, they're the things we tend to stop doing from about the age of 30. So the more recent research shows that actually you can prevent what was re- referred to as that natural ageing process. You can actually stop that and maintain the volume of your brain and therefore maintain the functioning and optimize your brain function. So physical exercise. So getting physically active is absolutely critical for brain health. Your brain weighs only 2% of your body, but it consumes 25% of the nutrients that you consume at any point in time. It needs oxygen to function. It's a high energy organ. You know, thinking is tiring. (laughs) Figuring out problems is exhausting. You know, like if you've had a day at work where you're really, really busy, you come home really mentally fatigued, absolutely shattered. And it's very different to a physical fatigue. And we're hearing a lot lately, we'll say about brain fog, you know, about long COVID and people saying, you know, people with long COVID have fatigue. And I think a lot of people think that just means they're tired all the time. Now, my second book is about beating brain fog. And I I was writing that at the start of COVID, at the start of the pandemic. And I, the minute... COVID hit, you know, I was saying, oh, my God, there's people going to have terrible brain fog after this. Now, I wasn't, you know, there wasn't a crystal ball that I could see this. We just know that happens after any serious virus. If you have sepsis, you can have brain fog for 12 months afterwards. Your brain has been under a terrible stress and it it has to keep its main priority is to keep you alive. And there's lots of reasons why then, you know, your brain function, you lose. It's in a way it's like muscle um, deconditioning. You kind of get a bit of brain deconditioning after a virus and you have to kind of build it, build it up again. Would it be fair then to say that if you're if you're recovering from something, your brain is so busy helping your body yeah. recover from something, it doesn't have time for like creative thinking? Absolutely. Or... It's not important. Yeah, it's not important. Okay. It's your brain's pri- pri- primary function is to keep you alive. OK, and you essentially have sort of three parts to your brain. Basically, the first part of our brain to evolve is the brainstem. Okay, and that is responsible for breathing, heart rate, you know, all the stuff that keeps you alive. And if you've ever watched ER or Casualty or anything like that, you know that you're scuppered if your brainstem is damaged unless you have a life support machine. And it's unconscious. You don't have to think about 
you know, breathing or making your heart, your blood go around your body, that your brain stem is doing that for you. The next part of your brain to evolve sort of sits in under your brain. You kind of have to turn your brain upside down to see it. And that's called the limbic system. It contains a number of various structures, very, very important structures, and some of them are tiny. So it's also often called the emotional brain. So that's where things like your fight or flight response, where information that you take in during the day is temporarily temporarily held on to until it can be integrated into your thinking brain. So that part of your brain really is, is responsible for emotions, for fight or flight. And again, they're all things that happen unconsciously. It is not a thinking part of the brain, okay? Then the crinkly outer part of the brain that most of us associate with the brain, that's the last to evolve. And that's the part of the brain really that kind of gives us our added human qualities. But it's where thinking, language, eyesight, vision, hearing, motor function, it's where all those things are that's where all the crack that's is. That's where it all, yeah, that's where it all happens. But the front part of your brain, the frontal lobes, that's the, the last part of that part of the brain to evolve. And that's the part of the brain that really sets us apart as humans and has given us the huge advantage that we have over other species because it's a really well connected part of the brain. It's connected to every other part of the brain, including the unthinking parts of the brain, etc. And it has access basically to all the information you have ever had. And it's the part of the brain that you use to make decisions. To It's the part of the brain that will, you know, make sure that when you're talking to your mother, you don't use the curse words that she wouldn't like. And, you know, it can disinhibit your behaviour. And if people get an, a brain injury to that part of the brain, a lot of their relatives will say, oh, my God, they just had a complete personality change. Yeah. And what it is, is they've just lost access to all of their learned behaviours because our personality really is just a combination of all our learned behaviours and our, our temperament, maybe, that we were born with. I remember a neighbour of mine uh, who sadly passed away, but he had had an issue with his brain and he he wasn't well, but he, he, he looked well. And, yeah, yeah. and we, I would chat to him. And when I moved in next door to him and then w- he used to love to chat and, and I'd, I'd be out the front garden chatting forever. But his wife came to me at one stage and said, look, he doesn't know when to end the conversation. So it's OK to just walk away because I'd be there for hours, you yeah, know, yeah, not yeah. wanting to be rude. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it was it, that was the... And part of that, they're very subtle, some of those things, you know, like that he wouldn't be re- maybe reading your, you know, that you needed to get away. Yeah, and yeah. He was just kind of in the moment, not connecting. And, and there can be other really sad. I did research for my undergrad degree about, you know, with people who care for people with a brain injury and I, there's some tragic stories I mean I, I I spoke to a woman who she told me like she had carried a card around that said my husband's not a pervert he has a brain injury because he could no longer disinhibit so if you think of a three year old they could easily just take their clothes off in the middle of the room and run around right yeah. so we say no 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 you can't do that you can only do that at the swimming pool or if you're getting into a bath uh, you know a toddler will reach out and they could reach out to touch a woman's breasts and you kind of go, no, that's not appropriate. So that's learned behaviours because they're just exploring the world and operating on instinct at first. And so if that part of your, if you've lost access to all of that, that individual was just 
operating on instinct, you know, and he could pass by and go to reach out to touch a woman, which is devastating. Absolutely devastating for everybody involved and hard for people to understand. And I suppose they're the kind of things I'd love people to understand as well so that you could... You, you, you kind of can Unders- be more, I suppose, empath- accept, empathetic. Empathetic, yeah, yeah. And, and question, well, maybe what's going on here? Maybe there's something else going maybe on. Maybe there's than, something than, else than going on. Like, and as yeah. you touched on earlier, you know, we're nothing without our brains. And I would actually say we are our brains. If you and I had a heart transplant, you would still be you and I would still be me. But And it's not possible. But if it were possible, if we transplanted my brain into your head, who would you be? I'd be like Freaky Friday. But you would be me. Yeah. Do, do you <laughs> yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you because it's all my experiences. It's all my learning that's in your head. So that's kind of the way I. I'd suddenly I, be I annoyed that my character in Fair City was killed off. <laughs> she was strangled <laughs> to death. Um, the, um, so we kind of took a bit of a detour there. But sorry, I think, yes, no, I think I it was an important detour because I, I think I've got an overall <laughs> sense of what we're dealing with you here. You get used to me. I do that. That's, but I do come back. That's absolutely fine. So we can come back now to the things that you were talking about, yes. like the important things like physical exercise. Yes. Physical exercise is really important. So I actually divide those up into activity, attitude and lifestyle are factors for keeping your brain healthy. So under activity, physical activity, mental stimulation is really critical for brain health. So basically, your brain is absolutely brilliant and it has the capacity to adapt and change with learning. That's how we've evolved into this incredible species. Um, And we've all seen it over the last year, how we have adapted to new environments, to new ways of living. It was really exhausting and challenging at first because your brain was, that crinkly part of your brain was learning how to cope with all these changes. And then it can kind of automate them. You know, it's adapted to them. And then when people go back in, they're going to kind of have to relearn. It shouldn't be as tough. So your brain is constantly learning. And when that happens, when your brain is learning new things or having new experiences or even tasting new food, you actually, the brain has to grow new connections and essentially gives you a denser brain and not dense in the sense that we use yeah, it. Yeah, He's yeah. dense. Yeah. I mean denser in the sense of like a forest or, you, you know. So the more connections you have, the more brain cells you have, the better. It's the one part of your brain where a part of your body, ladies, that where bigger really is, is better. You know, you want as much. And it also, the more... It's called neuroplasticity, this capacity to adapt and change with learning. Uh, And the more plastic your brain is, the more you challenge your brain, the more you take on challenges and, 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 and do new things, the more resilient your brain becomes. And you are then better able to cope with challenge. And that challenge can even be things like ageing, illness and disease. Broadly speaking, different parts of your brain are responsible for different activities. So vision is at the back of your brain, language is over here to the left, your motor cortex is on the right. But they're all interconnected and they they talk to each other. But if you're engaging in, say, if it's a physical activity or learning how to do uh, woodwork or something like that, there's only at that point in time, there's only certain capacity that that part of your brain has to do that. If you keep pushing yourself, it has to call on some brain cells from other areas of your brain to help out. Hey, you know, kind of come over here, help out, right? So those other parts of the the brain learn to help out when that part of the brain becomes challenged each time, okay? Now, if you look at somebody who has a stroke, okay, two people, imagine two people have a stroke, which is, can be catastrophic for, for brain function. 
you can find that one individual, both of them have an identical stroke or brain injury. One individual has minimal functional impact. You know, they have are able to kind of continue. They have a bit of a blip. Another individual maybe has lost language or, you know, really, really bad and they have to go for rehab. So when they go for rehab, the physiotherapist, the occupational therapist, what they're doing, the part of the brain is gone. It's damaged. You can't recover that. But what their occupational therapist is trying to do is to promote neuroplasticity to get adjacent parts of the brain to take over, to relearn that function and to take over and relearn language or relearn how to use the arm. Now, the other person, that part of the brain is still damaged. It's gone. It's dead. But because they've been challenging their brain, because they've been living a brain-healthy lifestyle, their other parts of their brain already know how to take over that function. And so they're kind of just ahead of the posse. So that's resilience. So we call that brain, we call that cognitive reserve and brain reserve, this capacity that you can have to build this resilience in for future challenge. And that's really key when it comes to dementia. So by living a brain healthy lifestyle, okay, you can't stop getting the disease of dementia, but you have a brain that can be resilient to it and that can resist the functional impairment for a lot longer than a brain that's not healthy. So basically you can have two people, they both get dementia. One has been living a brain healthy lifestyle and so has what we call high reserve or high resilience. Another hasn't been living a brain healthy lifestyle. This person who hasn't been living a brain healthy lifestyle gradually, as soon as the plaques entangles, that you know, the pathology of the disease starts to have functional impairment, might start to be a little bit forgetful. It's very gradual and it can happen over 10, 15, even 20 years. But there's a very gradual decline. This other person who has high reserve and resilience has the same pathology, the same amount of it over that 10, 15 years, but it's not impacting their function because they've got a lot of extra healthy brain tissue, they've been building neuroplasticity, and they so they can function absolutely normally. Now, they could die, they could get knocked down and die and never have the symptoms. And that research that I'm talking about that I first read was back in 1986, where this researcher called Katzman was looking inside the brains of people who had dementia and people who didn't. They were all over 75. They were all living in nursing homes. And when he was looking at his healthy controls, he found 10 cases of people who were cognitively normal. They had no symptoms, but they had sufficient Alzheimer's disease pathology in their brain for a diagnosis. And that's what started this whole area of research that fascinates me. So basically then it's not a get out of jail free card. If that person didn't get knocked down by a bus and continue to live longer, what actually happens is they have this precipitous drop because they use up all their, their reserves and they actually end up being as bad as the other person will say by 87 or whatever but they've had all these healthy years you know able to continue functioning 40% of all cases of Alzheimer's disease are attributable to just 12 modifiable lifestyle factors and then I flip those lifestyle factors to say this is how you live a brain healthy life so it's safe to say then physical exercise and then it's in there so low levels of physical exercise increase your risk of developing dementia 
high levels of phys- physical exercise will keep your brain healthy. Low levels of mental stimulation or leaving school early, young. They So people with low levels of education are at increased risk of developing dementia. Now, when that research came in, that was really frightening because you say, oh, my God, those poor people who left school at 12 or, you know, 14 and didn't go to university and as a consequence then didn't have mentally stimulating jobs because it has that whole knock-on effect because mental stimulation is really important. So uh, there was a study done in New York called the Bronx Healthy Aging Study. So in this study, again, in a nursing home, They looked at, I think it was about 500 participants. They followed them over five years and they were looking at their engagement with what they called mentally stimulating activities. They were really just hobbies, reading, writing, listening to music, you know, playing board games, chatting to other people. Right. And if that was a drug study, they would call, you know, there'd be a dose response. So they would call engaging one of those activities for one day per week a dose, like take one tablet a day or whatever. During the course of the study, 104, I think it is, gosh, and forgive me if I've taken the wrong amount, but a significant proportion of them went on to develop dementia over that five year period. In that group of people who went on to developing dementia, they found that one dose of engaging in a mentally stimulating activity per day pushed out the onset of severe memory loss by one month in the people who had a diagnosis. So what we have discovered is, yes, low levels of education increase your risk, but by engaging in mentally stimulating activities, you can counter that risk and maintain your function. That's where it comes to. Anyway, back to the activities, physical exercise, mental stimulation and social engagement. Yes, this is very important. That's absolutely critical. And that's why it's been a real concern during lockdown. I was very angry, actually, when older adults were told to cocoon and isolate. Imagine if they'd said to teenagers, you have to cocoon and isolate for six weeks. It's like putting people in solitary confinement. Now, I totally understood You know, I understood how disease prevents, but it should have been done in a way where they could still be socially engaged and that there was bubbles. I had to go on TV, asked by HSE, you know, you know, to explain to people, look, you can still talk to people. Here's how you can talk to people. It's okay. Talk to people over. It's really important. You know, here's there's devices you can get for your phone if you're hearing impaired, because there was dreadful stories of people who never left their house and never spoke to someone for six weeks. And a lot yeah. of people tend to think of social isolation as something to do with age. It's actually not. It's more context dependent. So people going to university for the first time, people moving house, women having babies for the first time. Do you you mm. know, it, everybody experiences loneliness. It's just a sign that you're human. The GAA had a fabulous scheme where they were trying to bring back some of their older people to reconnect them. And they came to me to talk about how to do it because they were saying they couldn't even get them to open the door. And I said, well, you have to understand they're now in a different zone. So you're going to have to work very dre- gently. You're going to have to build trust. They're going to have to relearn how to socially integrate. So social, social connection is really, really brilliant for your brain health and your mental health. So you mentioned the GAA there because as you were talking I was thinking it makes team sport and team sport activity and the activity around sports clubs and all that almost like the ideal the ideal overall holistic yeah. ex- uh, thing a thing to do. You've got social interaction you're physical meeting, exercise physical exercise you're learning new skills yes. all the time yeah. you're out in the yeah. fresh air so, you're so 
so that's what I say and, and what I've written in, you know, in my books, like, OK, you have all these things to do. Like, and I remember my editor saying to me, these are an awful lot of things, you know, like, can you ask people to do that in 30 days or whatever? And I said, yeah, but you don't do them singularly. Like, you don't have to say, OK, I have to walk for an hour. Then I have to talk to people for an hour. Then I have to do that. That's three hours of my day. No, you can do all three of those together. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You can join a book club and you can walk to the you're, book you're, club. You're and down chat the, te- the tennis club. You're, yeah. you're trying to get better at they're, tennis. They're you're chatting together. to your friends. And in fact, you're... kind of what I did in my first book was I allowed people build their own brain profile so that we worked through all those things and you could say look I'm brilliant at the physical exercise I'm good at the social stuff I'm actually crap at the mental stimulation so you could kind of build your own profile and see where you maybe were a little bit low and and work on building that up attitude is really really important basically your brain is constantly changing and it's your behaviours your experiences the life choices that you make that shape it Okay, so you have control over sculpting your own brain and people often forget that thinking is a (laughs) behaviour and it really is. It has the same effect as the physical work and it's as important as eating and and walking. So your thinking will influence your brain function. So is this about controlling negative thinking and trying to so positivity so positivity actually is really it really is important and how you think about things you know there's research that shows like if you send people in to do a memory test it, older people will say and you send one group in there do your memory test same match group same age and you say there do your memory test and and remember don't worry you know memory declines with aging that group who hear that perform worse on the memory tests than the group who weren't told that. So really, those things really do influence. And we know that like across, you know, just psychologically, how you think about things can interview your performance and you can overthink things. You see that with golfers. They're thinking too much instead of just being in the moment, which is another thing that goes into that attitude. You know, spending more time present doing what you're doing while you're doing it. A mindfulness almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I talk a lot about that. So mindfulness, yes, there is research that shows that meditation benefits your your brain. A lot of people find that, uh, you know, hard to do or, 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 or airy-fairy, myself included, you know. I've tried meditation tons of times and, you know, I'm a bit crap at it. Yeah, I like it. I'm not very good at it, but I like it. Right. OK, so what I explain to people is, but I do have very mindful moments in my life. I call them finding my joy. So basically what it is when I try to explain to people is that thing, whatever it is, because it'll be your thing, where when you do it, you lose track of time completely. And if somebody was to call you, you actually wouldn't even hear them. You are just at one with the moment. That so can be knitting, that anything, can be drawing, that can, can be, be watching a movie. It can be sport, you know, where you are just, I, I kind of, so it's kind of funny, but I say, you have to lose yourself to find yourself. That's just connecting with the thing and, and that's a present mindedness and uh, we need more of that and people need more joy in their lives as well anyway. And, and the reason that is really good is it keeps stress and anxiety and depression at bay because anxiety is about worrying about the future. Depression is often regret over the past. Now, I'm not talking about clinical, you know, depression and those kind of things. I'm talking, you know, maybe the earlier stages of it. And then stress, stress management is critical for brain health. Poorly managed chronic stress actually has 
negative effects on both the structure and the function of your brain. Very severe effects. I want to, before I go on to say that, so managing stress is one of the things I have in attitude. Now, what I want to point out is that stress gets a very bad rap and a very bad name. You know, stress is bad. Stress is not bad. You know, you need the stress response. Pretty much everything we have has evolved because it serves a purpose and has served us well. So the stress response has evolved. It 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 allows us to rise to challenge. It, you know, if you set goals, you need that stress response to get there. You know, if you want to take on the challenges I'm talking about to keep your brain healthy, you need that release of adrenaline and cortisol. That's really good. You get a spike of cortisol to wake you up in the morning. You know, it it gets you out of bed. It's important for motivation. So it's really, really important. Too little stress is really bad for your brain because your brain is understimulated. Your brain is a high energy organ. It can't afford to waste any of that energy on brain cells that aren't being used. So there's a process called apoptosis where it goes around and kills off brain cells that aren't being used. So use it or lose it really applies. And too little stress. So people who are unemployed, you know, some people for the pandemic, some people felt a lot of stress. Some people felt understressed, languishing, nothing in my life anymore. And that's kind of not good either. But the poorly managed chronic stress, it does a number of things. Ordinarily, when the stress response kicks off, when there's a stressor, a threat, whatever, let's say it's a loud noise as you're walking along a street, just for ease of, of, of explanation. I mentioned that you had two parts to your brain, uh, three parts, but one was the uh, emotional part, the fight or flight response and then your thinking brain. So ordinarily when the sensory information, the loud noise comes into your brain, it goes to the amygdala, which is the part of your brain responsible for the fight or flight response. It's only about the size of an almond, right? And it's the shape of an almond. That information goes to that amygdala via two routes. It goes through a fast route straight to the amygdala, unthinking part of the brain so that you will jump out of the way of, you know, if it was a car or a motorbike or whatever, save your life. React. Don't think about it. React exactly that. Jump out of the way. Okay. Thankfully, it also, that information also comes in through your frontal lobes. The thinking part of your brain, if you remember, is really well connected. It has the whole context. It can figure the whole thing out and go, it was a car backfiring or shit. (laughs) It's a gunman, you know. Move, yeah. Move, you know, or let's kick off, you know. Let's go. Let's go. Heighten it up. You may have to run. You may have to fight. Let's switch off digestion. Let's really ramp up this stress response. Or, sorry, false alarm, shut it down. So that's reflective. So you're reflexive and reflective. Unfortunately, what happens when you become chronically stressed? So when the reflective brain says false alarm, there's this lovely feedback loop that can send a message back to your brain, to the part of the brain that kicks off the stress response to release adrenaline and cortisol and says, shut it down. We have enough. We don't need any more. When you become chronically stressed, that gets broken. And what happens is the stress response just keeps firing and you get more and more and more cortisol. What happens then is neuroplasticity. Remember I said neuroplasticity about the growth? What happens is neuroplasticity is enhanced in your amygdala, the flight or fight response. Your amygdala starts to get bigger and stronger and it is suppressed in the thinking part of your brain. And so your 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 reflective part of your brain starts to get smaller and weaker. And instead of your reflective brain being able to overrule your reactive brain, the reverse happens. 
And so you just live on hyper stress and in hyper stress mode and you see threat where there's none. You don't make rational decisions. You don't reflect on your behavior. And, and that's, you know, that's changing the, the structure and the function of your brain. So it's really critical to to manage stress. Um, I have to be really careful because I keep I keep saying I just keep saying, wow, I think I feel like I'm <laughs> sitting there going. Wow. I'm sorry. I feel like I'm talking way too much. No, no, it's also fascinating. So so much. And I think we could just talk for another hour. (laughs) But we we, we, we probably (laughs) almost get into the to the to the. They still haven't told people what to do for their (laughs) Well, listen. But I think we've gotten an overall picture in that, like, get out there, live life, experience new things. Don't be afraid of a little bit of anxiety. Don't be afraid of a little bit of stress. But manage. But manage. Yeah, yeah. If you were to sort of sum it up, it's like it's it's like get out there, experience new things, learn new things constantly. That's the activity and the attitude and the lifestyle thing is very simple to straightforward really it's healthy diet healthy weight no smoking minimum you know really alcohol is not good for your brain I'm yeah, sorry well, folks my, but my, it's my, just my mother always told me you're killing your brain cells, yeah, so yeah yeah it, it just really isn't you know it's not great for, for your brain so it really you know all just that healthy stuff that you know about Mediterranean diet is really has the best evidence for giving your brain the kind of nutrients that it needs to function well so you're talking fish and oils and fish and oils yeah and colourful fruit and vegetables that sort of thing yeah great. and then yeah we didn't even get to brain fog, which is probably oh, something. Yeah. We'll have to do another episode oh, just maybe, on brain yeah, fog. Yeah. Or people yeah, can yeah. buy my book. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> yes, if you want to learn more, you can buy the book uh, or you can listen to the podcast. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. So the podcast is Super Brain Podcast. This podcast is called I'll Start Monday. So what steps could our listeners take this Monday to start on their wellness journey with regards to the brain? Smile. Smile and laugh. It's absolutely brilliant for your brain. Laughter, I call nature's natural stress buster. So it actually lowers cortisol levels. Smiling and laughter, they boost your immune function. They lower your blood pressure. They increase the growth of brain cells. You know, like, plus it's it, it's fun to do. And I think over the pandemic, a lot of people forgot to have fun. And because you're not socially engaged, because we're wearing masks, we're not getting that smile fix. So yeah, I'll end with saying I prescribe smiling five times a day. Once first thing in the morning because it's a great way to start the day. Once last thing at night because it's a brilliant way to end on a positive note. Share at least one smile with someone else because it's contagious and you're spreading the health benefits. They'll get all those benefits and you can do whatever you want with the other two smiles. Wow. wow. And, and actually my wife always says to me, it's, it's eight hugs a day. You need eight hugs a day. I don't, wow. know if she's, I don't know if that's where she found that information. No, so I don't know. I mean, I only pick five randomly, but, but you know, throw smile Throw a few more. hugs there as well. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah, hugs. And, and you th- see, the thing is, because of social distancing, we haven't been mm. able to hug. And there are very similar health benefits to hugging. So your wife is on the money there. You, it lowers blood pressure as well. And, and, you know, immune function like hugging, you know, that's what I'm saying. We're social creatures. Yeah. We need other people. Hug, smile, interact, Hug, smiles, do things. Get yeah. out there and live your life. There you are, folks. Thank you very much to uh, Dr. Sabina Brennan. Whether you're looking to stop bad habits, create new habits or anything else, to positively impact your life then circle next Monday in the diary and get started on your brain and this is the final episode in the series thank you very much to all our guests and thanks to you for listening